0: In 1787, the Free African Society in Newport established their own African Burying Society and Fund. They had rules and regulations. They had, in fact, today we sometimes, when we're in New Orleans, recognize it as the Jazz Funeral, or it could be Junkanoo in the Bahamas. But right here in Newport, across the diaspora in the 18th century, there were African funerals that followed very specifically the Akan people of today's Ghana ceremonies. We have hundreds of Africans assembling in the in the center of town, marching here, chanting drums, music, to lay the rest of their dearly departed because under the common tradition, they're being reunited with their ancestors. And then after, there's a celebration.
1: Welcome, you're listening to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
2: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. You just heard a clip from episode one of our interview with Keith Stokes, advisor to the Rhode Island Black Heritage Society and eighth generation New Porter.
1: This is a second episode of our two-part interview with Keith. In this episode, Keith continued to unpack Newport's underrepresented history as we stroll the burying grounds of God's Little Acre, a two-acre colonial African cemetery that is situated within the 10-plus acre boundaries of common burying ground, Newport, Rhode Island's oldest public cemetery.
2: God's Little Acre has been recognized as the oldest and largest colonial African burial ground in the United States. It dates back to the late 1600s and contains the graves of over 300 enslaved and free Africans and African Americans.
1: In this episode, Keith shared stories of prominent Africans like Pompey Brenton, who was the servant of Rhode Island Governor Brenton. Later, as a free man, Pompey would become governor of the Free Africans of Rhode Island, elected by the African community during their annual Lection Day ceremony. Pompey died August 5, 1772, at approximately the age of 55. At the time of his death, Pompey Brenton was one of the most prominent Free Africans of New England. His is just one of many stories that the century-old stone markers of God's Little Acre disclose.
2: The burying ground offers many more clues to African heritage, and we pick up our conversation with Keith about the meaning of the different size and shapes of the grave markers.
0: These granite columns are just uh, would have been plot markers. But remember, okay. this, this burial ground dates back over three and a half centuries. So you have three and a half centuries of burials here it is now not an active burying ground in fact my family owns the only last plot. my late mother we buried here last year mm-hmm. so there are no active burials here and there are the density that you see there is the density that should be here so now that we're restoring all the existing markers we have a landscape plan to come in place and restoration plan we'll use ground penetrating radar and start to unearth and start to reset markers But one of the reasons why we have not moved to unearthing so many of the markers that have settled on the ground is, the ground makes a great preservation material. Mm -hmm. Uh, Slate is a very porous material. You can kind of see this. Slate is very, very porous. And what happens is with the rain and then the extraction and contraction from winter to the spring, it just splits and falls off. So here is an example of how we've inserted a natural epoxy to restore that marker. That marker would have been just chipped and broken and frayed. And, th- and we have lots of discussions. I mean, I'm a curious and we talk about how much outside material should we be introducing to these historic artifacts. Mm-hmm. And we've had discussions about that, but everything that we use is a natural and eventually mold into, become a part of the larger structure. But again, this marker here would have looked more like these where you see the flaking appealing so this is an ongoing effort of restoration preservation interpretation and this is a city-owned asset so the people have a right to come through here we just guide them no pick up after your dog no stone rubbings you know manage this place as a sacred place generally people have been respectful to this
2: I wanted to ask you about about, uh, the enslaved and the free people of color and African Americans in this part of the country. Uh, Clearly there were more uh, opportunities to uh, learn trades, to be educated. That is a little different than uh, what people may necessarily think of when we think of what what enslaved people go through what they have access to
0: yeah let's go in the shade i mean we have to be and i'm gonna sit here so i can okay we've got to be careful in how we interpret history we we have to base it upon the primary evidence that we have okay Uh, and then if there's gaps we have to be very careful how we're interpreting closing that gap okay Um, the africans that arrived here were absolute chattel property Um, And we have significant numbers of runaways. We have significant numbers of brutal beatings of African men, women, and children. So to say that New England slavery was uniquely different or better uh, than than the South or the Caribbean um, really doesn't understand the system. Um, Africans, because of the fact that they had trading and there was investments in them, significant monetary investments, um, they were managed more efficiently not treated better. If you were, were, there's an old slave saying, if you might have heard, it's called sold down the river. And what sold down the river means is better to be a house servant in Boston than be in a tobacco plantation in the Virginia colonies, which was still a lot better than being with the mosquitoes and yellow fever um, in the Carolinas in a rice plantation and nobody wanted to be in a sugar plantation where the life expectancy was less than three years. So they were replaceable assets. Thus, that's why the system sustained itself so aggressively. So it's important to understand that by the very conditions by the economy, it would require enslaved Africans to have access to tools and sets to benefit their master and to benefit their master's prosperity and economy, not themselves. Once they became free and once slavery ended earlier here, Africans had tool sets and capabilities that would accelerate them far beyond their brothers and sisters farther south or in the West Indies. So I I wanna be clear here. White folks aren't doing us favors now. They weren't doing us favors back then. This is our ingenuity. This is our decisions. And that's one of the reasons why in United States history we make a, a terrible mistake by thinking that the first emancipation is 1865, the end of the Civil War, or the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. The first great African emancipation starts in 1777 in Vermont, and over the next 10 years, every New England and Northern now becoming state either gradually or immediately abolishes slavery. By the end of the 18th century, you have a new kind of people in America that never existed before, free, educated, literate, engaged Africans and they start co-locating and building these free communities all across the Northeast. Newport had one of the largest free communities, what is today Bellevue Avenue. In Providence, it's College Hill where Brown University is. In the case of Boston, it's Beacon Hill on the West Slope. That's why Joy Street and the African Meeting House is here. In Philadelphia, the Seventh Ward. And they had names like in Bristol, they'll talk to you about the Wolf, but nobody will talk about little, uh, Little Liberia in Little Gory neighborhoods in Bristol on Wood Street, or Bridgeport, Connecticut, Little Liberia. So the point is, is that it's these free Africans who have access to skills and education organization. Many of them have similar African origins of Macan people, so they share cultural religious identities. They begin setting up the first everything, free black church. They're setting up the first free benevolent society, Prince Hall in Boston establishes the Prince Hall Masonic Order. The second's in Providence, the third's in Philadelphia in the next few years. Prince Hall is sending letters to the Newport Africans here talking about everything from trade issues to correspondence issues. They're sharing money. So I, I just want to be clear to the fact that slavery began here because the United States of America began here in New England. And the white people institutions who participated in it did it because it was their direct personal benefits. and. There were some that disagreed, but they were the far minority of the majority. And the African slave trade was the world's first equal opportunity employer. Christians, Jews, Muslims, mm. every European country participated. I chaired the education committee here at Turtle Synagogue, which is the oldest synagogue in America. And my maternal grandmother was Jewish. And the Jews were actively engaged in the slave trade, not because they were Jews, because they were 18th century merchants from Portugal and Spain the first slave traders in Newport were Quakers uh, my grandmother used to have a, a great story about Quakers in old Newport one foot in the county house and one foot in the meeting house because they didn't let economic prosperity to get away from their religious piousness and in fact their justification was let's convert them all there was just wholesale converting of Africans into the religion of the household not for free access to religion but it's a control mechanism
1: and see, that's a story that nobody really knows about. We have a different idea of who the Quakers and, and were. And the
0: Africans are talking about that. Again, I, I don't need to read William Penn's interpretation. Mm. Africans in Philadelphia and Newport are talking about these things. Mm. They're talking about the fact that, you know, now that we're free. I mean, in fact, uh, it's the Africans in Philadelphia and Newport and Providence who are saying, we don't want to go all go back to Africa. When our, if we go, we'll go on our own rights. Mm. You're not sending us back. Mm. So they actually reject the American colonization society initially. Mm.
1: God's Little Acre holds centuries of rich history, and because there are markers hundreds of years old and in need of restoration, we asked how those markers are identified.
0: Every marker that you see exists in the spot at the time that person was buried there. I see. Okay. So, just to give an example here, and they're buried in family systems, they're buried in religious systems. This is the family of Athatike. And Arthur T.K. arrived as Nuba T.K. He's enslaved by Ebenezer Flagg, who is a rope maker and a member of Newport's first um, Baptist church, Uh, actually the Sabbatarian Seventh-day Baptist church, which began here, and he's trained as a rope maker. And in fact, he converts into the Baptist church and becomes a lifelong member, a pew holder of that church and then as a free man he reverts back to his name he keeps his Christian name Arthur but it becomes Arthur Tike. this is his wife this is his sons this is his children here's a child Solomon Nuba Tike. you can see the death set we use his headset for our African sign there um, Arthur TK is the founder of the Free African Benevolent Society He is a founder of the first free African school, both Boston and Newport simultaneously by 1809, established free African schools. Free meaning, we own it, we operate it, we teach it. His son is a teacher there. And then here's his three grandchildren that unfortunately, they all die from yellow fever. Again, we're a seaport. So as goods and products are coming in, so are rats and fleas and vermin. So yellow fever, cholera, smallpox are sweeping across this community but he buries them together you're listening to the award-winning world footprints podcast with ian and tanya fitzpatrick world footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that illuminates our common humanity and uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences Support World Footprints by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This will help other like-minded and interested travelers find us. Also, please join the World Footprints community by subscribing to our newsletter from worldfootprints.com.
1: Here's more of our conversation with Keith Stokes as we walk through God's Little Acre in Newport, Rhode Island, America's oldest and largest colonial african burial ground
2: one question that i have for you you have focused and emphasized the african origins of this history the 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 record the caretaking from an african perspective not a eurocentric perspective in terms of doing that research the challenges Finding the foundational documents, finding the artifacts. How does one really go about doing that here in in America, where our repositories are not the repositories? It, it's that a great we question.
0: Um, today, it's easier because many of these things are being digitized. So, from an access standpoint, I've been the Rhode Island advisor for the National Trust for Historic Preservation. I've sat on national. Uh, local preservation board so I've always had access to archives and if it was 25 years ago my wife and I'd be crawling through stacks and archives um, I, Our running joke was we would be in Barbados, Curaçao uh, Bermuda I very rarely have been on a beach in those locations yeah. <laughs> if I'm in Jamaica I'm in Kingston or Spice Town or Jamaica Town or Spanish Town looking at archives um, the same in Bahamas so I've always had and again I've always had the honor to work with African heritage scholars who share this interest. In fact, they're surprised, you're an American, you want to talk about, and you're in Jamaica and you want to talk about African Jamaican history, that's that's really neat, we don't get that so much. Usually Americans run to the beach. (laughs) So you want jerk chicken. Um, No, so first of all, the documentation is there. It's always been there, the primary and secondary. The second is we need it interpreted through the lens of people of color. We see things differently. Um, we're looking for things from a different perspective. Um, I'm fortunate, I'm blessed that my kids are ninth generation. And, and I've grown up with this. Uh, my grandmother walked me through here. I, I can show you a picture, I think I have it. Oh yeah, here it right. is. That's my mom and me in 1966.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Here, my, my uncle was a Tuskegee Airman that was killed in service in 1945. He's a Newport kid, and he's right here. So I mean, for us, um, this is who we are. This is my, again, as I said, my grandmother who was Jewish, you know, would be the one to remind her, and her husband, my grandfather, who was a part of the African thing, she would be the one to remind me, oh, blacks, Jews, we were here before all of you. Forget forget about all you Irish and Italians, all that. It's us. This is our community. And she would say that, and we have artifacts and records to see that. And, so for me it was cool being black even though when i went to school in chicago and elsewhere people said well keith you're a mix you're not black you're really black you don't sound black you're from new england because guys we come in all shapes and colors
1: right
0: we hold it's you've got to understand this you've got to step away from this box that we're placed in that we have to look a certain way or speak a certain right. way or come from a certain you got to stop that because everywhere else in diaspora they don't think that way so I'm blessed to have this as an opportunity, and even my kids now who are young adults, they help out here, they're doing this work. They, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we're, we're proud of it. But again, and my wife, who really runs the Black Heritage Society, is doing good work. Last year, we're the first state in the country that passed legislation to require every K-12 public school to have comprehensive African heritage history curriculum. Not African-American, this will be the diaspora. So, Thank you. she'll have some announcements. I can't leak, but she's partnering with Historical organizations colleges, they're going to be announcing an entire African heritage history chair. They just selected someone nationally to mm-hmm. come in and, um, They'll be digitizing all the collections and creating what she'll call the, the roadshow RHOD for Rhode Island and where any kid or student or teaching can go on a portal mm-hmm. and it'll have access to all that information with pop-up videos kind of like TikTok and Wow. So we're about two years away from that. I mean, she's today going to unveil some of it. But the point is, is that we've always had this. It's just, we need to empower more of us to want to interpret it and Mm -hmm. embrace it. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I'm being very candid. Um, I think white folks have a place for this, but I think they should allow us to lead this history.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And when I hear things about John Brown and Province being the largest slave trader and James Wolf in New Bristol and here it's every merchant, my response is, yeah, that's what they did, so what? Okay, okay. I want to talk about John Camino. I mean, there are lots of people I want to talk about that are so much more interesting to me than people who made money off our ancestors' backs. This is so rich. I it's love it's, it's it. just a different it's, perspective. It, it
2: is, it is, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's helpful and it's needed. I mean, you know, we want to talk about our continuing challenge and dilemma here and even you know picking a place to start in terms of understanding this and even how how we talk about it I noticed that you said African heritage you did not say African American heritage even though we've talked about no, that African heritage yeah yeah, it, yeah
0: it's it's years and years of being able to to interact and and befriend uh, fellow African heritage people across the diaspora I mean you know, I've, I've been better embraced in Ghana than sometimes in being in, in Chicago. <laughs> in, in fact, you know, they're looking at me saying, okay, you know, you got all that white mixed up and everything, but you came, Keith. I mean, the, just to give an example of what we did is, I had said my ancestors were taken from Fort William in Ghana to Jamaica. They brought me back in 2019 for a whole ceremony. And Ananabu is a very small town north of Accra, but Fort William still exists. And they brought me into the slave castle and we had a whole series of libation ceremonies. The whole village was there. Then they brought me to the, you know, the doors of no return that they all have, the big doors that separate the castle and the beach. And then you're off and you never come. So they had me push it open. And when they opened it, everyone cheered and, and, and clapped. We all had snops and beer. And they said, well, for you, it's the door of return. And nobody was talking about slavery. And nobody was talking about American versus Ghanadian or Fonti versus Akan. They were just saying, Keith, you took the time to come back and we welcome you. And that was so cool. I'm going to make sure I get every one of my kids there, right there, because that's how we should be expressing our history and culture. And and again, talking about slave traders and slave systems gets into the way, because that's been done. That's been done to death. It gets into the way of us really starting to extract the information history that values our kids.
2: As we talked and walked towards the God's Little Acre sign, we asked why black cemeteries aren't traditionally on the grounds of black churches, unlike other denominations.
0: This was largely set up for Negroes, but but then the town expanded rapidly and they were running out of room as people were dying from pestilence and disease and war, and they filled it up, and then later, Portuguese, you'll see Greeks, they come here. There are enslaved Africans on the other side also, that enclosed area there is William Ellery, our sign of a Declaration of Independence. There's several Africans oh. behind him there. Mm-hmm. So, so, again, it's, this is all because of John Clark's vision of not separating men and women and families mm-hmm. and life and death by religion or class. This, this is a physical reminder of the importance of separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. So, it's laughable for me today to listen to some of these Republicans and Trump folks and this term national Christianity or Christian nationality. And I'm sitting here and saying, that was never the intent. Mm -hmm. And I have the documentation, I have the primary research, Mm -hmm. and my own life is tied to, there was never an intent that this be a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. And the founding men and women of this colony would have laughed at a Donald Trump or a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm -hmm. So this is the back of the sign. than the front of it what we did in designing this is we wanted to have the sign itself tell a story so the the Rhode island is representing the manacles the iron shackles of slavery oh. that's the star of ghana which represents a majority of the africans would arrive from the gold coast the two pineapples at the top uh, pineapples of this are the 18th uh, century symbol of maritime prosperity. Mm. If you're in Charleston, South Carolina, yes, you're in Barbados, Jamaica, anywhere, everyone's got pineapples so edged on doors, paintings. I have big paintings in my house because it's, a sign, it's also the sign of African slavery, mm. because those that harvested and planted and died for these commodities were largely African men, women, and children. Mm. And then we put, you know, different sayings in the back, proverbs in the front. And we'll be restoring the sign again. You see the words are chipping a bit. But the top is Solomon Nubatike. Oh, yeah, that's what the you just saw. Child. Yeah, that's yeah. his marker. And again, that's because many of the Africans that arrived here were children. And ironically, this is Farewell Street. And this was named that way because of the burying ground here. God's Little Acre is one of Newport's special gifts to the public. This is a public space. Anyone at any time have a right to come here, and interact with this space. But it's also a sacred space and a fragile space. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you Burying mean? grounds are not cemeteries. Burying grounds are you're buried as the land and as the topography exists. In fact, these trails that you see where my car is, that was put in later in the mid 19th century. So for the most part, everything you see outside of some of the ornamental trees, Of the way it lays cemeteries began and accelerated after the civil war when they became places to memorialize the dead and that's when trails were built gardens were built larger almost i mean like a belmont mausoleum started to be built whereas here under the vision of clark and others we're all equal no grand markers just like if you're in downtown newport Mm -hmm. we're one of the only new england communities in our town center that has no church at the top of the town center We wouldn't allow that. In fact, all of our places of worship are in an equal semi-distance around. But where we're walking here, there's all burials here. Mm -hmm. My mom, who was 98 last year when she died, would tell me as a kid in the 30s, she could barely walk through here, it was so crowded. Mm -hmm. So it's only been in recent history that we've seen the loss of markers. And again, most have just simply collapsed into the ground. In terms of the resources
2: and uh, the help that you're getting to help tell this this history, where is that coming from?
0: Is it it's, private it's, sources? It's, it's, no, probably? it's coming from um, when I was on the city council back in 92, I established the city uh, bearing ground commission. And now my wife's on it, our historical societies, Rhode Island Black Herod Society. And it's their job to come up with a management plan a landscape plan. Mm-hmm. We also set up a separate uh, nonprofit in the city to raise funds, and you know, raising funds to restore has not been a problem because the identity is pretty high, um, and there are families in this community that have a sense to contribute to that. Mm-hmm. So that's not been the issue. It's just painstaking. As I yeah. said, it's it's close to three thousand dollars a market to restore. We have artists come in and do this by hand, mm-hmm. and it's just trying to keep up with the restoration. We've done about half. That's the good news. So, over the next, we're projecting by the next two to three years we'll have everything restored. Then we can go into the ground penetrating radar and start to identify and then begin to bring them back. Okay. Uh, it, it's just, I would never restrict public access to this. We've had discussions about uh, should we restrict access. Instead, we've decided no, we should maintain access, but, you know, Don't walk your dogs through here off leash. Pick up after yourself. Don't Mm -hmm. play football in here. Be careful in here. And for the most part, um, people responded very favorably. Mm -hmm. This is in better shape since I'm 62. This is better shape since Mm -hmm. I've seen it in my life. Mm
1: -hmm. Is there something you want visitors walking through these grounds to to take away?
0: What do you hope they experience here? What do you want? I want everyone to to walk away and say, wow, this is cool. We existed. Mm. This is us. Mm. You know, not everyone looked like, you know, George and Martha Washington. Mm -hmm. They look like Pompey Brenton. That's what my daughter, my daughter who's 33 now, she said that once. She said, oh, it looks Mm. like me when she was eight. We are working here. Mm. Mm. And that's cool because she has a sense of identity. This is why Black Panther was such a cool movie. Mm. Because Mm. kids got to go there and say, wow, that's a superhero. Well, these are the real superheroes here.
2: As we started to wrap up our conversation with Keith and head back to our cars, Keith spoke to us about a reparation strategy he was involved with and he pointed out some of the other markers of note.
0: As a part of our reparation investment strategy, we're gonna be investing heavily in expanding African heritage history and culture and identity. We are looking at a project birthright program because we wanna make sure that every kid of African heritage gets to go back to Ghana or maybe back to, Ga- or back to Barbados and Jamaica uh, and reconnect in that level. So that's a part of our strategy recommendations. It's not 40 acres and a meal. Mm. That's not measurable. <laughs> I mean, cash allotments aren't measurable. Um, but there are things that we can do strategically mm-hmm. that we generally feel the larger white institute community would be comfortable with, because ultimately they're going to have a position because it's still their world.
2: I'm going to have to come back to that statement. Okay. Well, you, you, you can ask me, cash allotments are not measurable. If you say that to an accountant or someone that 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 we can't count the money you you are really talking about looking at what we need to do to help people who are essentially left out become included and begin to see you themselves. We're, were
0: repairing right? harm. Reparations is simply repairing harm. And that's more than a cash allotment. My ancestor, Octobo, um and, and we, we can walk up if you want. We've got to go up here. I can send you, we have a web link, and my maternal family's name is Barclay, and they were all a part of the Barclay family, Barclay Bank founders and such. Mm. But when he was emancipated, he was specifically brought to Philadelphia, set up with a dowry, set up in training, and then introduced and placed, in at the time, the largest free black settlement in the Western Hemisphere of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So he was able to immediately, through his reparations effort, build a life as a free African in America, surrounded by some of the most, I think, well-known, successful black entrepreneurs, James Fortin, earliest black religious leaders, such as Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, those were all his contemporaries. And it was, so the equity investment they made in him in reparations was not only monetary, it was cultural, it was religion, it was identity, everything about him was supported. This is our family plot right here. So that's my dad, my mom, maternal grandparents, that's the Tusigi airman there. So this area is ours here. And again, the markers are kept very simple here. Mm-hmm. This is not Island Cemetery. We, the whole purpose of being here is being here. That's what we memorialize. That's what we celebrate, the fact that we're here. In the picture I showed you, I'm standing about right here with my mom okay. looking at his marker. The symbolism of the stones. Well, the crosses are uh, veterans, veteran markers. But Those I mean are the, f- the rocks. Until the <laughs> I don't know who does it it's my maternal grandmother who is Jewish uh, but she converted to be a Christian in 1903 in Newport but mm. but uh, that is a symbol of um, life after death in Judaism mm. so by placing them if you go to Israel you go to a barren ground mm-hmm. there's stones on markers yeah. but it's, it's a symbol of your everlasting life and remembrance and memorial. so someone comes by here and does this <laughs> which is kind of fun but the stories we have, I mean, the markers that are here are, are pretty extraordinary. Prince Updike, he's a master chocolate grinder. We have it because we have his chocolate grinding records. Mm-hmm. When, when the sugar tax was put in place, uh, sugar was hard to, to come by in the colonies. Mm-hmm. So it's several of the Jewish merchants who decided to bring cocoa beans in mm-hmm. and they start grinding chocolate. So chocolate becomes... Um, a very, very um, well-used product versus coffee and tea. And it's a number of African enslaved and free that become master chocolate grinders. This is the burial area of Zingo Stevens. Zingo, again, came from Ananabo. Uh, names like Zingo and Sambo, uh, we have a lot of them here. Those are African names that, that the white culture and community indoctrinated us that somehow that's, you know, not a positive representative name. Mm. Zingo Stevens, these are his three wives he outlived. (laughs) Um, You can see here, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Phyllis. Violet, right here, wife of Zingo Stevens. Zingo Stevens is a stone polisher in the John Stevens shop, polishing stones and such. He's there at the time with two other Africans. There's some who interpret that Zingo is the one that carves some of the markers that are here. There are two remaining with the carving. Mm -hmm. But there's another that has Pompey Stevens. Looking at the records at that time, in the gaps, there's a general belief by some that Pompey and Zingo are the same person. That Pompey is a slave name, and then he becomes free. He's always known as Zingo Stevens, because Pompey disappears from the records almost exactly when Zingo appears. And then going forward as a free man, it's Zingo Stevens. Whereas the two markers have PS or Pompey Stevens. Mm -hmm. So there are some who believe they might be two different people, others who might think one versus the the next. My sense is it doesn't matter. These are Africans cutting stones Mm -hmm. and signing it. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that's interesting about Zingo Stevens, we have no idea where he's buried. There's no record he's buried here. His home still stands. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is his daughter, Sarah, who married, this is Cuffy Rodman. And their home still stands in the point. In fact, we have over 30 homes where Africans owned and lived in the colonial times still standing. Mm. Many are now Airbnb's and I guess it's not sexy to name it after an African name. They want mm. a pirate or yeah. English captain. But, uh. mm. but one of the great, and I want you to look at this very carefully. This marker, very, very carefully, if you look at it, Phyllis. Now, Phyllis was, along with Zingo member of the Second Congregational Church, Reverend Ezra Stiles. And we have Stiles' records and such when she died. And all their kids are converted and all of them baptized in the church. She died giving birth to her son, Prince. I mean, obviously childbirth was reckless then. And a number of children are stillborn, like it's the term here. So, the child was buried here and she died a few days later and is buried with the child. But I want you to look very carefully at this. The child in her hands has African features. That's an African yeah. child. So, yeah. And she's wearing a head wrap. She's wearing a very traditional African woman head wrap, which they would have worn consistently at that time. So, again, this marker tells us so so much more about slavery and then at the end you have some verses from the Bible which they believed in very strongly but it's the imagery that it has there I mean beneath this stone is an African child and woman Mm. Mm -hmm. and today anyone can come here and see this and when I show this to kids of color they're like wow who cares about George Washington tell me more about Phyllis And she and other African women here were friends and contemporaries of Phyllis Wheatley in Boston. There's a whole series of letters between an Albert Tanner who's there and Phyllis Wheatley that still exist, And they're talking back and forth as two free African women. In fact, Phyllis Wheatley's first published poem is in the Newport Mercury here in Newport. Wow. Not Boston. And she has letters talking to a number of Africans that are buried here who are all friends of hers, talking about religion. She came from Senegal originally. In fact, the Newport Africans tried to convince her to return to Africa with her and she said no, she's too sickly. She's forgotten the language. Mm -hmm. So my my point is is that there's so many stories here that we can tell you about the people. Um, And I've not even gotten into 18th and 19th or 20th century. We have some of the first black graduates of Wesleyan here, some of the first doctors.
1: Wow, Oh, we'll just have to come back.
0: And we will be back.
1: Keith left us with so much to unpack. We could actually spend an hour reflecting on our conversations.
2: Yes, indeed, and we only offered a brief mention of our conversation about reparations that go beyond what he calls unmeasurable cash allotments.
1: I know, and that was a very interesting conversation we'll have to save for another time. So in the interest of time, we're going to yield the remaining time to Keith as we learn about the person, past or present, that he'd like to travel back to Ghana with.
0: Oh, I'd return with uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, Utaba. Um, I would just want to see his face and his eyes and what it's like. I would go from Newport to Philadelphia to Jamaica and to Ghana and just be able to see him returning home and what he felt like and what it means to him and then have him take me by hand and walk me through, you know, plantations in Jamaica and then walk me through small townships and that'd be cool, that's an easy one.
1: We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're so happy that you're here. It would mean a great deal if you could leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us on.
2: We'd love for you to join our community, so please subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter from our website at worldfootprints.com. Our newsletter is full of travel news, tips, and resources, including our favorite links.
1: Thank you so much for your support and for giving us a space to share the world through the stories we offer on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, public radio exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.